Good morning, church. As always, it's a blessing to be up here. And I don't know if you noticed uh, up here, Mike, it's really warm up here today, isn't it? The heater, we got a lot of heater going. That's good. The uh, New Testament reading today, church, comes from Romans 8, 31 through 39. And the Old Testament reading, which will be the sermon text for today, comes from Psalm 139, 1 through 18. Let us now give our undivided attention in the reading of God's most holy word as we begin in the sermon teaching for today. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. And I'm sure you're remembering now, this is what we just read, so we get double reflection on it. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword, as it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else, in all of creation, will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Let us turn now to Psalm 139, again verses 1 through 18. The title of this sermon today is The Nearness of God. Psalm 139. O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up, you discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all of my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it altogether. You hem me in behind and before. You lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. Where shall I go from your spirit, or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall guide me, and your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me, and the light about me be night, even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is as bright as the day. For darkness is as light with you. For you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of them. The days that were formed for me, when as yet there were 
none of them. How precious to me are your thoughts, O God! How vast is the sum of them! If I would count them, they are more than the sand. I awake, and I am still with you. Thus far the reading of God's most holy word. May the Lord bless the preaching and the teaching of it. Church, over the last several years of preaching at Emmaus, I realized that I actually had been following somewhat of a sermon series without really knowing that I was following much of a sermon series. For upon reviewing my previous sermon outlines, I realized that most of them really were focused on more popular sections of uh, Scripture. Verses such as Romans 8, 18 through 25, Matthew 6, 19 through 24, Philippians 8 through 9, Ephesians 2 through uh, 1 through 10, 2 Timothy 2. All of these were Scripture references of which I've preached on over the last several years at Emmaus. And on reflection of these, I began to think to myself, wonder to myself, what was my motivation in choosing all of these verses? Was it just because they were easy and popular? Maybe perhaps somewhat, but I realized that upon reflection, my most primary motivation, though there were a variety of reasons of why I preached on each section, was really to more fully and clearly exegete some of the more well-known verses that might have more easily been taken out of context due to the often lack of background because of its popularity. When verses are very popular, we tend to hear them, be familiar with them, but to not know the extent and the depth behind them. Each one of the sections previously listed is often well-known and very easily recognizable by most Christians. And it's because of this that these portions of Scripture can easily become overly familiar to the Christian, putting one at risk for a complacent understanding of specific section, sections of God's Word. Take, for example, the most popular and well-known verse of all time, John 3.16. And think for a moment how well-known that verse is to all of us in here. Yet, with how well-known it is, when was the last time that we really, really reflected on the depths and the truths found within John 3.16? This is not to say that just because a section of Scripture is popular, such as John 3.16, and just because it's well-known, that it automatically means that one will more quickly become complacent in its meaning. Rather, all Scripture, in fact, is at risk of having a complacent reading if the reader is not careful and diligent to fully read and reflect upon the words of God. I'm sure that you've noticed the care that we take here at Emmaus when we present the Word of God to the church. Psalm 139 is no different. Though it is a popular psalm, the teaching within focuses on this very point, that we must be careful and highly intentional when not only reading the Word of God, but in fully reflecting upon and meditating on the truths of God found within. For, for Psalm 139 is a rather simple section of Scripture to understand. There are very few language debates, very few theological controversies or points of contention. Instead, Psalm 139 is actually a very simple message with rather straightforward applications. And these applications have actually very profound ramifications for both the world and our faith. But as stated, we must be cautious in carefully thinking upon the teachings of God and deeply reflecting upon their application. This was David's whole point in writing Psalm 
in writing Psalm 139, that he would properly see God for who he was and properly understand his position before God, lest he become complacent in understanding and applying that which he knew to be true about God. Let us take a moment now before we get into the background of Psalm to go to our Father in prayer. Father God, we do come to you on this day as your church, Father. Thankful for your word, understanding and aware of what your word is, Father. Help us to do that all the more so. As we look deeply at the depths of your word, Father, as we reflect deeply upon the things of you as David did in this psalm, help us, Father, to clear our hearts and our minds as we dig into all that is contained within your word, Father, for it is that which nourishes our soul, it is that which we need, Lord, it is that which sustains us for you, Father, the author of all things, the author of your most holy word, is the one, Father, behind all things. Help us to think clearly, help us to hear your word, help us to see clearly through your word, and in the application of your word. It's in your name that we pray. Amen. Psalm 139 is technically classified as both a prayer and a lament psalm, yet it's one of the grandest psalms of all 150 psalms, as it brings the reader face to face with the absolute majesty and power of God, and it exalts God as the all-knowing, omniscient, all-present, omnipresent, and all-powerful, omnipotent God. It clearly displays that all aspects of a man's life are completely and totally in the hands of God. Looking broadly at the structure of Psalm 139, like most of the Psalms, there's a clear pattern to its makeup. There are four clearly distinguishable sections, today of which we'll be looking at the first three of them, which are verses 1 through 18. And each of these sections consists of six verses, verses 1 through 6, 7 through 12, and 13 through 18. I'll pause briefly to make the note that it would serve you well to have the scriptures opened and to be looking carefully at each of these verses as we move through them. When viewing this psalm in its totality, the principal and most central question involved in its study clearly emerges. Here David asks God, where shall I go from your spirit or where shall I flee from your presence? Verse 7. For in asking such a question, David intentionally displays to the reader that there is no escape from God. As a sinner, David comes to the only possible and logical conclusion in answering his asked question. To escape from God, for whatever reason, is simply impossible. For not only is it, not only is he, God, omniscient, he is also omnipresent. And from these thoughts, David turns to reflect upon God's relationship to himself, remembering that from the very first point of David's life, when he was but an embryo in the womb of his mother, God had been with him and was intimately involved in his creation. Thus, the psalmist turns to reflecting upon the uttermost power and ability of God in his creating of man in his mother's womb, only to conclude that his all-knowing and all-present God must also, therefore, be an all-powerful God, being the only one truly able to bring life itself into existence. Let's now take an even closer look at each of the specific verses contained within Psalm 
139, verses 1 through 18. In section 1, which consists of verses 1 through 6, David lays down the first of three great doctrines. That God, whom has a perfect knowledge of us, knows all the motivations and all the actions of man, both our inward and outward, for all are open and naked before him. In verses 1 and 2, as David begins in this psalm, he states that he does not come before God with any form of concealment of thought or motive. The psalmist begins this psalm with the knowledge that all of his person is completely transparent before the Lord of the universe. Thus, David voluntarily lays bare his innermost self before God for inspection. This to show that his whole life was known to God, who watched him closely in all of his actions, when he slept, when he arose, and when he moved about. The word translated thoughts in verse 2 is the Hebrew word reah, the translation being one of proximity. For in the use of this word thoughts, the true meaning of the word brings out the idea that the most distant objects are contemplated not as far, but as near by God. The image that David is painting in this section of the psalm is that God is a God of, uh, that is not just confined to heaven, indulging in some state of repose, or being indifferent to human concerns, rather, however far off we may be from God, He is never far off from us. The daily activities of the psalmist were also thoroughly familiar to the Lord. As stated in verse 3 here, David lists the opposites of his activities. The going out in the morning, as opposed to the lying down at night displaying that everything in between, meaning all things contained in David's life, God was intimately aware and involved in. But the one example that epitomizes God's omniscience most clearly is found in the following verse, in verse 4, where before the psalmist could even frame a word on his tongue, the Lord was already th thoroughly familiar with what David was about to say. For the Lord... And his omniscient power knows us at such an intimate level, church. He not only knows our thoughts, he knows them before they even come into our minds. What an amazing concept and great reminder of the intimacy of our God with his people. Next in verse 5, the psalmist states that the Lord hymns him in. And this is to imply that David was surrounded on every side and so constantly kept in sight by God. David sees that there was no direction that he could escape from the all-seeing eye of God. This section, therefore, is to be understood as asserting that God, by His hand, holds men strictly under divine inspection so that they cannot move, not even an inch, without his knowledge. This directly transitions the psalmist into placing himself into proper, into a proper and humble position before the Lord, as he boldly states in verse 6, such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high, I cannot attain it. For God is the only omniscient one, capable of handling such an awesome power of knowledge and David, in an almost confession-like manner, expresses to the God of the universe that his omniscience is beyond his, David's, 
comprehension. Declaring that no words could express the incomprehensible and divine reality of God's all-knowing ability. For all things stand plain before the eyes of God, church. Having neither bound nor measure, so that the psalmist could only contemplate the extent of it with a conscious imbecility. Hence, David begins the first six uh, six verses of the psalm with an opening prayer of praising God for his perfect knowledge of him. Humbly recognizing and accepting that nothing about man is hidden from God. For he knows when we sit down, and he knows when we rise up. He knows our thoughts from afar. He knows about all of our ways. He knows every word we speak, even before we have a chance to think of it. And so the psalmist ends the first section standing in awe of God's most wonderful and holy knowledge, only of which God himself is able to comprehend. Continuing on in verses 7 through 12, we move into the second section of the psalm. And here the author transitions from reflecting upon God's omniscient power to focusing on God's omnipresent power. The psalmist is certain that God perfectly knows him, and all men for that matter, and that God is acquainted intimately with all of his ways. Thus, if God possesses such an awesome, omniscient power, David reasons, then surely the possession of omnipresence must also follow. In verse 7, the psalmist states, Where shall I go from your spirit, or where shall I flee from your presence? For heaven and earth include the totality of creation, and the Creator fills both. No man is able to be in any place, spiritual or physical, outside of the presence of God. It is here that David mirrors the words of Jeremiah in chapter 24, verses 23 of his book, where the prophet states, Who can hide in secret places so that I cannot see them, declares the Lord. Do I not fill heaven and earth, declares the Lord. So God not only intimately knows both heaven and earth, He created both, governs both, and He fills both. Every part of creation is under both God's intuition and influence. And so David again humbly and submissively acknowledges this truth and sees himself bare and open before the Lord, not just in knowledge, but in presence as well. For no movement of space, time, or realm could ever remove us from the presence of God. David understands it is impossible for man to be able to elude the eye of God. And in reference to the term spirit in verse 7, we're not to just conceive of the power and presence of God alone, but his divine understanding and knowledge as well. These two are intimately connected. For man, the spirit is the seed of intelligence, and so it is here in reference to God. Both the knowledge and presence of God are intimately intertwined. And God's eye transcends both the depth of man's heart as well as the depths of Hades, so that no one and nothing of this time or of the next, of the physical realm or the spiritual realm, would be able to escape the eye and the presence of the Almighty 
God. Thus the psalmist tells the reader that even if he were to fly to heaven or lurk in the lowest abyss from above or from, above, uh, or from below, all things are laid naked before God. Verse 9, David uses the term wings of the morning or wings of dawn, depending on translation. This is a beautiful metaphor. For when the sun rises on earth, it transmits its radiance suddenly and broadly to all regions of the world. For even if one should fly with the speed of light, he could find no place where he would be beyond the reach of the divine and omnipresent God. Furthermore, contrasting the analogy of the light and the heavens with the depths of the oceans, David completes his analogy showing that even at the furthest point of the two most extremes, heaven and earth, light and darkness, man is unable to hide from the hand of God. For any place man might ever find himself, heaven or earth, this life or the next, man could never reach any location outside of God's guiding and controlling hand. As stated in verse 10, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me, says the psalmist. In verses 11 through 12, David continues, hypothetically reasoning that even if he were to believe somehow that the darkness would in fact hide him, he recognizes that even in that darkness, the darkness would become as light to God. Here, it's as if David begins to portray himself as a desperate and fleeting man, attempting to use every possible method available to escape from a situation of transparency before the Lord. Thus, after acknowledging that it was vain to dream of flight from the Lord, David hypothetically thinks up for himself another remedy. And he states, If I am unable to run from God, perhaps I may be able to hide myself then from His presence. But this also, he declares and concludes, to be in vain, as God sees equally well in the deepest darkness as well as the brightest light. Church, in the first section of Psalm 139, David portrays the omniscience of God, God's all-knowing power, showing that all is open and known before God. But in the second section, David more thoroughly addresses the divine power of God, showing that God's omniscience penetrates even through the realm of knowledge into that which is physical, clearly displaying that God is completely and totally above all things time and space, knowledge and location, your life and mine. Nothing escapes the knowledge and presence of God. Nothing. The picture that David paints is that of fallen creatures before the Lord. For as we study the first chapters of Genesis, we see that the state of man prior to the fall was one where Adam walked in the knowledge and in the presence of God. Adam was fully known by God, and God was known by him. Adam was with God, and God was with him. But when sin entered the world on that fateful day, this communion was broken. And what do we see man's first response in his newly fallen state to be? Genesis 3, 13-18 shows that man's response to God after entering into sin was to try and hide from the physical presence of God and to foolishly attempt to deny his actions as if God was somehow 
unaware. For in our sinful state, church, it is our nature to not only deny and to conceal our sins from God, but from each other as well. And as time has passed, it would seem that we have flipped the priorities in the concealment of our sins. We are often so ashamed and embarrassed to let others know and to let others see our shortfallings and our delinquencies. Yet in our sin, we have become so indifferent and unconcerned as to what God may think of us in our condition. We often give such little thought of God's perspective on that which we go to such great lengths to hide from others, as if our sins were somehow covered and veiled from God's inspection. But this is a grave error for man to make. For all things are laid open and bare before the Lord, and David is fully aware of this in his sinful state. And he says in another psalm, Psalm 51, 3-4, I know my transgressions, and my sin is ever before me. Against you, referring to God, and you only, have I sinned and done evil, and done evil in your sight. David recognized that his sins and the concealment of them is first and foremost a transgression against God himself, and a foolish one at that. David, therefore, speaks about God's omniscience and omnipresence at great length in order that the reader might apply the reproofs given and remind us of such great truth when we tend, foolishly, church, when we tend in forgetting the divine presence of God in all places, times, and events, especially when it comes to the acknowledgement and the confession of our sins. Next, In the third section, verses 13 through 18, David begins this psalm discussing the immense and divine power of God. This power is evidenced by his creation of each and every individual. For God, the psalmist states, created our innermost being, that is, those things that control us, our mind, our heart, our will, and that he knit us together while we were in our mother's womb. The word knit is used to picture David as a fine piece of art and to picture God as a masterfully skilled craftsman. And at the end of verse 14, David transitions from writing about these hypothetical analogies to instead writing about the direct truth that he has derived from the exploration of these attributes of God. That he, David, has been fearfully and wonderfully, that he has been fearfully and wonderfully made. And that he knows this truth full well. Never has there been such a terse and expressive description of the physical confirmation of man given by any human being. So fearfully are we made, and there is not an action or gesture in our bodies that functions without divine precision. Even now, science has a better grasp about the surface of Mars than it does about all of the immense complexities of the human body, mind, and soul. Therefore, we are so wonderfully made that our organization infinitely surpasses in skill, design, and architect of any piece or mechanism ever executed by the hand of man. For God's skill in creating, church, is second to none. Thus, God must know David perfectly, for it is he who knit him together in the womb of his mother. 
The embryo, when first conceived in the womb, has no form. And David speaks of God having known him when he was yet in a shapeless mass. Therefore, the psalmist praises God of his wondrous nature for his physical body and his mental capacity. He had been fashioned with skill and with care in the lowest parts of the earth, referring to the womb, which is so called because it is as dark and mysterious as Sheol. Even when he was in the form of an undeveloped embryo, God had his future mapped out in his book of Providence. Here is a clear example that an ideal plan of life has been providentially marked out for every individual. We need not then wonder if God, who formed man so perfectly in the womb, should have an exact knowledge of him after he is ushered into the world. So then the psalmist portrays God as the architectural king in the creation of man, clearly displaying that all facets of man, his thoughts, his motives, his location, his action, even his very conception, are all subject to God's guiding hand. For even when we were enclosed in our mother's womb, a place that is unseen to the eye, God saw us clearly, as if we had stood before him in the light of day. Lastly, in verses 17 through 18, David concludes uh, this final section, section 3, with somewhat of a doxology, saying, How precious are your thoughts to me! How vast is the sum of them! David here turns from an inflection upon his personal thoughts and position before God to a reflection upon the actual thoughts of God. The exclamation made by the psalmist in verse 17 suggests the reader that if a man were not so senseless, if a man were not so senseless, he would regularly be struck by the mysterious ways and the amazing person of God. And if man were to properly place himself in his correct position before God and humbly and tremblingly recognize God with his proper attributes in mind, he too would come to the same conclusions of David and would then stand in awe in the nature, person, and power of God. The same is true for the first part of verse 18, that if any should attempt to number the hidden judgments or counsels of God, their immensity would be more than the sands of the sea. Our human capacity simply could not comprehend the most infinite part of them. As David states in the last part of verse 18, when I awake, I am still with you. In light of all that David had concluded in the previous verses, the psalmist found a new occasion every time he awoke from sleep for meditating upon the extraordinary wisdom and capabilities of God. And when he speaks of rising church, it is not simply referring to one day that happened. Rather, he states that every time he awoke, every single morning, he discovered fresh matter for the admiration of his God. What a great example and reminder of how we should begin each of our mornings. We are thus gifted with David's concluding insight that God's providence of the world is such that nothing can escape him, not even the most secretive of thoughts. 
And although there are many that are misled into all excess of sins, transgressions, and crime, depraved with a pseudo-belief that God will never discover them, they do so in vain. For such men resort to the false hiding places from which, however reluctantly, they must one day be dragged into the light. The truth is that all would do well in considering the truth of God's attributes. For by seeing God for who he truly is, omniscient, omnipresent, omnipotent, all-knowing, all-present, and all-powerful, we in turn will see ourselves clearly for who we truly are, creatures of God, subjected to sin, and in need of redemption. And in such knowledge, there is also great comfort, church, for the one who is in Christ. For through Christ, we are able to reap the benefits of such an amazing, good, righteous, and beautiful God. But only if one is able to come properly before the Lord, seeing clearly who he himself is in light of who God is. And with that in mind, we will now turn to taking the three concepts, the three omnis, as they are called, and looking at applications of each. Three applications, church, that I want to pull from this. Firstly, omniscience, no knowledge, is hidden from God. It's very simple. It's very applicable. Something that we could reflect deeply on. No knowledge is hidden from God, omniscience. God knows all things, church. He knew the first day this world would come into existence, and He knows the day that Christ will return for the full redemption of His people, all times, all eras, all peoples, all wars, all cultures, all things have been and are intimately known by God. Throughout the entire history of mankind, God has personally known every single heart of every single man and woman who has ever walked upon the face of this earth, for none have been outside of the all-knowing power of our all-knowing God. And not only is this concept a new level of amazing that we can hardly fathom, it is also extraordinarily important to both you and I. For God knows you brother or sister. He knows all of your thoughts. He knows all of your motives, whether good or bad. He knows all of your ways, whether godly or sinful, for they are all bare before the Lord. Therefore, brothers and sisters, walk with your God in light of this knowledge, always being transparent before your Maker. Confess your sins when you transgress. Know that He sees Cry out to Him when you are in pain. Rely on Him when you are in need. Do not walk as if God does not already know the depths of your heart, for this is one of the great lies of the evil one, and it is great foolishness to do, to believe that somehow our hearts and minds can be concealed from the Lord. As David made clear, no place escapes the eye of the Maker of heaven and earth. Thus walk transparently before your God, growing in your faith 
and knowledge of him. Confess your sins and move on, for he knows you, church. He knows your struggle. He knows your sin, and he cares for you. Be reminded that this is the same God who sent his only son to earth to die for mine, your, our transgressions. As Paul states in Romans 5, even while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. God knows your heart. He knows your thoughts. Be reminded of this. Find comfort in this. Stand humbly before your God in light of this. Second point of application, church, also comes from the second section about God's omnipresence. No place is hidden from God. No place is hidden from God. Very simple. These are not complex applications. Extraordinarily simple with more depth to their application, more meaning, more behind their application than almost anything else. For in the same way that no knowledge can be hidden from God, so too can no place exist outside of the presence of God. No man can hide from the presence of God, not in the secret of his mind, nor in any place, heaven or earth or Sheol. For those outside of Christ, this should be a terrifying, an absolutely terrifying reality that none can escape, no matter what, no matter how hard they try, no matter what they devise. None can escape the presence of God. It is no wonder then that when we are in sin, we are so prone to try and run from our Creator. For this was the first recorded action of man in the garden after Adam and Eve had sinned. Upon their sinful eyes being opened, their first response, their very first response, was to attempt to run away from the presence of God. It's almost comical if it wouldn't be so serious. And we almost chuckle at it, yet at the same time, do we not always do the same thing when we find ourselves in sin? To try to attempt to run away from God as if He already doesn't know the struggles that we're having in our own minds and our own hearts. And at what great lengths, church, have those outside of Christ gone to in attempting to deny this truth and to quiet their own conscience? It is only out of God's common grace that we see in Romans chapter 1 that God eventually gives the wicked and the depraved over to their sinful desires, lest they exist in a state of guilty rage directed at God and His people. But rest assured, church, no man will go unpunished for their sins and wickedness. For though God may give the depraved over to their depravity for a time, He will hold all perfectly accountable for all of their actions. None can escape the hand of God no matter how hard they try. But for the Christian, for the Christian, not only do we find great comfort in the fact that God will properly and righteously deal with all those who have wronged the people of God, the Christian has an even greater benefit than this, the absolute presence of God. For the same God that constantly sees and oversees all has made his dwelling place within his people. For even now, church, God is in the midst of us. An amazing concept. And with that, have you ever considered this, this concept at great lengths? That you, as a child of God, that we, as the church of God, are also the dwelling place of God? God is present with us. What an absolutely astonishing concept. 
And we must heed the words of David in light of this knowledge that God's present is ever present. It is always there, for God is always present in the lives of his people. And this is a discipline. I'm referring to the practice of the discipline of the presence of God. And this is a discipline that is often highly underpracticed and underutilized, in my opinion, with the people of God. God is present now, even now, with his people. He is present with you when you leave from this place and go home. He is present with you when you go to work. He is present with you when you quietly or secretly struggle with your sins in your own hearts and in your own minds. He is with you when you lie down. He is with you when you get up. The point being is that God is always, always with you. It's just that sometimes we are more aware of it than others because how easy it is to become distracted and forget about the continuous presence of God in our lives. But church, may we be a people that discipline ourselves to living in a state of continual mindfulness of our God's presence. For when we are in Christ, there is nothing but comfort and benefits in the continual presence of God. As Christ said in his final words before his ascension in Matthew 28 through 20, and hear this church, this is very, very important. The last thing that Christ in his physical body says before ascending to heaven, only to one day yet in the future come back for his people, are these very words. And surely, Christ says, I am with you always, even to the very end of the age. The very last words of Christ, church, were those of reassuring us that his presence will never leave us. We have assurance. We have assurance of his presence to be with his people, to be with us until he returns again. Let us be comforted by these words and be reminded that our God has never and will never leave our side. Point number three. And final point of application, church. And again, very simple. Referring to God's omnipotence. No thing is beyond the controlling and sovereign hand of God. No thing is beyond the controlling and sovereign hand of God. Brothers and sisters, the words of Psalm 139 leave no doubt as the complete and sovereign control that God has over all of his creation. Our God is alive. Our God is active. And our God is involved in every detail of all of creation. From the global affairs that take place on an international level to the minute details of a sparrow's life, God's hand exists throughout all of creation. Through God's power, all things were created. And through God's power, all things are sustained. And though this does not mean that God causes all things, though this does not mean that God causes all things, lest we err in our theology, it does, however, mean that God is the one who ultimately is behind all things, being the creator and the sustainer of all. And what could be a more awe-inspiring creation than that of man himself, than that of all of those who have gathered together in this room? We are a testament, the absolute testament, to God's creating power. As far as we can look, Throughout the entire universe, nothing rivals the amazing complexity of man's being. And in light of God's all-knowing and all-present power, you, brother or sister, were fearfully and wonderfully made by your Creator. 
For David makes it abundantly clear that a life being made in the mother's womb is a testament to this complete and awesome power of God. This concept of which has a couple of very important and profound implications of which I will very briefly mention. Two implications as to point number three. Implication number one, God has great purpose in your life and for your life. As referenced earlier in Matthew 6, 25-34, clearly displaying God's deep concern for the lives of his people. Furthermore, we see countless examples throughout Scripture, like the life of Joseph, the life of Moses, the life of Joshua. The list could go on and on, story after story, for which God intimately walked within the lives of his people. Nonetheless, the teaching is clear. God has plans and is working in your life. Never ever forget this. In point number two, according to Psalm 139, nothing is a more clear display for which why David uses creation when addressing God's power. Nothing is a more clear display of God's amazing power than a creation, than his creation of life. No matter how hard man tries to match the creating power of God, never will he be able to replicate the creation of a human life out of nothing. In fact, it is within this point that I must wonder if it is not out of frustration that those opposed to God are so active in supporting the pro-abortion movement. Perhaps since the act of creating a life is so clearly impossible for man, then maybe the act of taking such a life back gives this false sense of control that one might be looking for in their depraved state. I am only speculating as to the motives of the abortion, or more commonly known as the pro-choice movement. And normally, church, the pulpit is no place for politics. But is my belief that this issue is one, is one of a few political issues, very few, that transcends the walls of politics and has the merit of being mentioned from God's pulpit for, and I will say this carefully, and I will say this very clearly, church, to kill a child while in a mother's womb is murder. And as Christians, we must be careful to never support in any way the taking of an innocent life. However, church, for how awful these new abortion laws coming about may seem, and for how unstable and uncertain it may seem that our nation and perhaps the world have become, God is sovereign over it all. God sees, church, the injustices all around us. God clearly knows the evils that take place. Have we not clearly learned this in the study of Psalm 139, that God is very aware of what is happening in California and in America and in the world? In the words of the writer of Ecclesiastes, there is nothing new under the sun. For God, our God, knows all, sees all, is involved in all, created all, sustains all, and properly and righteously deals and will deal with all. No sin will go unpunished, church. Evil will not continue forever. God knows. God is aware. God is involved. Trust, therefore, in your God. So in turning towards conclusion, what, you might ask, should we do in response to all that we have learned in Psalm 139? I again want to turn to the book of Ecclesiastes as the conclusion of the book of Ecclesiastes very much mirrors the same conclusion of Psalm 139. As the concluding verses of Ecclesiastes 12, 13 through 14 state, Fear God and keep his commandments, 
For this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. Thus, brothers and sisters, the words of Psalm 139 and the concluding word of Ecclesiastes should bring much comfort and assurance to the follower of Christ. For when we walk with our God, His knowledge, presence, and power bring only comfort and assurance. But for those who are fighting against their Lord, for those who maybe are running away from their God, for those who have rejected their Creator, I would presume that if any such person were in this room, you're probably feeling quite uncomfortable and uncertain with the words that you have heard. But therein lies the beauty for those who run from God to those who struggle with God, the beauty of the gospel. For when we accept our place before God, our all-knowing, all-present, and all-powerful God, repenting of our sins and resting in Christ, we are once again restored to that which was lost so many years ago in the garden. Let me therefore close with the reading of the first two verses of the famous hymn, Turn Your Eyes Upon Jesus. Listen carefully to these words. O soul, are you troubled and weary? No light in the darkness you see. There's light for a look at the Savior and life more abundant and free. Turn your eyes upon Jesus Look full in his wonderful face, and the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. Let's pray. Father God, in response to hearing of your word, Father, we are just completely, Lord, in awe of your knowledge, your presence, your power, Father your knowledge of all, your presence in all, your power over all. These are things, Lord, theologically that are referred to as incommunicable, Father, for we don't have any way of truly understanding the depths of them. You are so far above us, Lord, yet at the same time, Lord, you have transcended, you have condescended, Father, bringing yourself low to come back for your people. What a humbling thing it is, Father, when we see you clearly for who you are in all of your majesty and see ourselves for who we are, depraved and broken, sinful, in need of redemption. But as we're reminded, Father, while we were yet sinners, Father, you provided the solution. Glory, power, and honor to all of who you are, Father, for you are the God of all things. May we be reminded of this, Father. May we never forget of this. We stand in awe of this. It's in your name, the name of Christ. Amen.